You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, bismillahir rahmanir rahim, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar Anjali's Ahmed, and God willing, we will be with you all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, Make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials, on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so if you're familiar with The Breakfast Show, especially here on the uh, for, 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 for the Tuesday's Breakfast Show, you'll know that we usually speak about three main topics. We begin our day with uh, the newspaper headlines. Um, and then we talk about three main topics, like I just mentioned. And the first segment for you today is uh, the impact of cell phones on our planet's safety. Um, something which uh, may come of, uh, come as a surprise to, to, to some of you. Um, I, I know it came as a surprise to me when we were, going, we were conducting the research for this. Um, so it's a, quite an interesting one there. <clears throat> Sorry, and uh, the second segment after the eight o'clock news, we'll be speaking about stop smoking for a healthier life. And last but not least, we're going to be discussing a new discovery, the largest dinosaur print ever in Yorkshire. So these are the um, the, the, the headlines, uh, the, not the headlines, sorry, the topics that we'll be addressing today. Um, so quite a few interesting ones. And so if you would like to get involved in the conversation, remember, like I said earlier, this is your radio station. So don't feel shy. You can pick up the phone and voice your opinion. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, you can hit us up on our Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so, uh, Jalisa, I think we'll quickly go through the weather and then go through the uh, the newspaper headlines. And and just looking at the weather here on uh, BBC, it says um, that today uh, the south will be cloudy with spells of rain, sleet, and now uh, and snow gradually clearing away. Snow showers across northern Scotland and Northern Ireland and northern eastern Isle- England as well. Dry and sunny elsewhere. Tonight, the south will see spells of rain and snow move in from the southwest. Northern Scotland and Northern Ireland will see a few snow showers elsewhere. It will be a very cold and clear night. So that's the weather for today. Looking at tomorrow, uh, which is Wednesday, of course, tomorrow we'll see snow clear from the south uh, uh, early uh, further rain and snow moves into the southwest later in the afternoon sunshine for many in the north but snow showers continue in north scotland um, and if we look at the rest of the week, uh, well, up until saturday at least some so from thursday to saturday uh, we can see that on thursday a spell of disruptive snow will move across parts of the north. Further south, we'll see outbreaks of rain and northern Scotland will be mainly dry and bright. Friday will have a cloudy and wet start, 
but it will turn drier uh, and brighter in the afternoon with sunshine. Saturday will see another band of rain move in from the west, which will turn wintry in the north. Um, so that is the weather um, from today all the way up until Saturday. Um, I'll just give you the highs and lows actually as well because today there's lows of minus one degrees um, and highs of uh, four degrees Celsius. Uh, Tomorrow is similar with the highs um, of four and uh, um, lows of one degree. Um, Thursday the 9th uh, you have uh, 6 degrees um, highs and lows Friday the 10th is highs of 9 degrees and lows of 5 and Saturday we have um, a similar uh, as well to Friday so 9 uh, degrees of uh, Celsius highs and 7 degrees for the lows uh, so that is the weather uh, for uh, today all the way up until Saturday uh, so, so basically the summary over there is that rain, sleet, clearing uh, the south today, sunny spells and some snow showers for the north uh, and of course it is going to be very cold um, so I mean uh, the, the, the weather uh, did well, it did seem like it was getting better uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe two two weeks ago or so. But uh, um, for uh, for the last at least a week now, uh, or maybe even two weeks now, I, 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 I forget. Uh, but uh, it's been about two weeks almost, and it's it is rather cold uh, now as well. So I mean. Um, I th- I thought and, and we me- we mentioned this earlier as well. We we, we were thinking that it's maybe time uh, for, for for us to pack away our s- scarves and our hats and our gloves. But uh, but it seems like the the the, the winter uh, just can't get enough of us, isn't it, Jalice? Yes, I hundred percent agree. I mean, <coughs> just uh, beginning of this month. I did um, actually have my scarves and uh, gloves packed away, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I didn't think I would need them until you know um, a bit later on. I didn't know I would need them this early, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It is getting cold. Um, I feel like we'll be with the cold for some time now, um, for for maybe another. Because uh, in the in the news, I have been reading um, every now and then. Mm-hmm. That there are you know light snows that would take place, so uh, yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah, um, uh, I think we'll go straight to the newspaper headlines now. We do have a jam-packed show with uh, with a lot of uh, esteemed guests uh, who are going to be joining us throughout the course of the show as well. So, uh, law to stop small boats and Johnson to make dad a sir. Um, a number of Tuesday's papers lead with government plans to reduce the number of people entering the UK by crossing the channels in small boats. Uh, the Times says that under the plans, oh, there will be a cap on overall refugee numbers and the Home Secretary will have a legal duty to remove all, almost all asylum seekers who enter the country on small craft. It adds that duty will take precedence over human right and modern slavery claims. We will push human rights law to the limit, quote-unquote, reads the headline in the Daily Mail. The paper says ministers have been advised that the proposals are lawful, but push the boundaries, quote-unquote, of the European Covenant on human rights. It adds that people arriving by illegal routes will be able to appeal against asylum decisions 
only once they have been deported with the exceptions made for children and the gravely ill. Home Secretary Suela Braverman uh, has told the Daily Express the government owes it to British uh, owes it to the British people quote unquote to solve the issue of channel crossing and that Labour and others who oppose these measures are betraying hard working Brits it says The I reports that senior Tories have said the plans may be unworkable because the UK will struggle to detain everyone crossing the channel or find countries willing to accept deportees. The paper has spoken to a former cabinet minister who says Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is at risk of over-promising and under-delivering, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Former Health Se- Secretary Matt, uh, Matt Hancock discussed uh, blocking funding for a disability centre in order to persuade a Tory MP to back down lockdown restrictions, according to The Telegraph. The move was discussed in some of the WhatsApp messages passed to the paper by journalist Isabella Oakshot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the co-author of Mr. Hancock's book and a vocal critic of lockdowns. Mr. Hancock is said to have spoken to an aide about taking plans for the centre off of the table, quote-unquote, if James Daly, MP of Bury North, went against the government on a key note. <clears throat> the Metro reports that 21-year-old Eve Smith, one of the three people whose bodies went undiscovered for days after a car crash near Newport early on Saturday morning, is the second daughter for uh, second daughter her family have lost to road accident. Smith's older sister was reportedly killed in a collision caused by a drug and drink driver in 2015. Wow. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson has sparked disbelief by nominating his own father, former MEP Stanley Johnson, for a knighthood in his resignation on his list, according to the Daily Mirror. The paper quotes one MP saying Johnson is making a mockery of the honours system, quote-unquote, and says Rishi Sunak is being urged to block the award. The Daily Star features the former Prime Minister mocked up to look like the godfather telling Rishi Sunak, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Knight my dad, quote-unquote. Stanley Johnson is also saying, is also seen saying, we're the Tory mafia, quote-unquote. <laughs> uh, more than 1,000 uh, super-emitter sites gushed the greenhouse gas methane into the atmosphere in 2022. The Guardian reports, the paper says the worst single leak gave off uh, gas uh, at a rate equivalent to running 67 million cars at that methane emissions, um, which uh, which now account for 25% of global warming, may be the biggest threat to meeting the 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius warming target set by the Paris Agreement. And the Financial Times reports that the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, is to meet Taiwan President Chai Ing-wen amid ongoing tensions between Beijing and Washington. The paper says McCarthy expressed a wish to visit Taiwan before becoming Speaker, but that the pair have been ag- have agreed to meet in the U.S. because of Taiwanese secretary concerns. Following a visit to Taiwan by McCarthy's predecessor, Nancy Pelosi, China dispatched warships and military aircraft to the waters surrounding the island. Mm-hmm. 
so as we can see, many of Tuesday's papers lead with government plans to block anyone entering the UK illegally from claiming asylum as part of attempts to reduce the number of people arriving in channel crossings. Um, so we'll just quickly summarise a few of the um, headlines and the front pages that we've seen. So the Time reports uh, that the Home Office is expected to buy two former RAF bases in Lincolnshire um, and Essex that could house thousands of detained migrants before their removal, either to their home nation or third countries such as Rwanda. It quotes government sources who admit that they cannot say if the proposals are definitely compliant with the uh, UK's obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights, and they expect a legal challenge. The Daily Telegraph reports that the bill introducing the measures will uh, specifically state that they may not uh, comply with the convention, although ministers believe that they do. Uh, it says the Home Secretary, in promising the push, the in promising to push, sorry, the boundaries of international law, uh, is directly challenging European judges. The paper adds that the legislation will give Suella Braverman powers to c- counter European Court injunctions, such as the one uh, which, uh, uh, such as the one which last year, last summer, blocked the first deportation flight of Channel migrants to Rwanda. We will push human rights law to the limit, quote unquote, reads the headline in the Daily Mail, which says uh, the bill will be rushed through Parliament and could be in place by the summer. Writing in The Sun, Rishi Sunak says the plans will take back control of our borders once and for all, uh, while the Home Secretary tells the Daily Express that the government owes it to the British people to solve the issue. The I says some Conservatives uh, think the measures are unworkable because the UK lacks capacity to detain tens of thousands of asylum seekers and may struggle to find countries to, f- to, to take them uh, when they are removed. It quotes former Tory cabinet ministers who fear the Prime Minister's uh, Prime Minister risk, uh, risks over-promising and under-delivering. According to the Daily Telegraph, Oxford University is banning romantic relationships between lecturers and their students under the current policy. They are strongly discouraged um, and must be declared to a line manager. But from next month, anyone with responsibility for a student faces the sack if they start a relationship with one. Staff will also be strongly discouraged from any other close personal contact with, tra- with uh, which uh, transgresses the boundaries of professional conduct, quote-unquote. University College London and Nottingham University already have similar measures in place. The Guardian reports that more than a thousand so-called super-emitter sites pumped the greenhouse gas methane into the atmosphere last year. The paper says the worst single leak at a fossil fuel facility in Turkmenistan, gave off gas at a rate equivalent to running 67 million cars, like we mentioned earlier as well. Methane now accounts for a quarter of global heating. And the Daily Mirror says that reports that Boris Johnson has nominated his father, former MEP Stanley Johnson, for a knighthood are beyond belief. Sunak must stop this farce, uh, it implores. The independent website quotes unnamed 
conservatives who think the nomination is outrageous uh, and ridiculous nepotism, completely without merit, uh, quote-unquote. His headline reads, Arise, Sir Dad. <laughs> Uh, so these are the, uh, the the front pages for today, and a bit of a summary of uh, of a few of them as well. Um, Jalees, was there anything, uh, any any one of these which caught your eye in in particular, or maybe uh, one of the the other articles from within uh, the the BBC? Uh, yeah. So just an hour ago, um, uh, BBC published a report or a news um, saying that Australia. Uh, the title was Australia Crop Exports Set for Record High After Heavy Rains. Now, um, when I was just going through, so I'll briefly just go through the uh, the, the news and then uh, I'll just uh, uh, say one or two things that came to my mind when I was reading this. Is that So the report says um, that heavy rains, which was blamed for some food shortages in Australia, have also given crop exports a boost. So the country's farmers are predicted to see their most valuable year ever. Mm-hmm. You know, agricultural exports are uh, forecast to hit a record uh, 75 billion, and that's around you know 62.3 billion uh, pounds. That was uh, 75 billion um, dollars. In the year to the end of June, you know, according to the Australian, um, uh, the uh, Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics. Um, when I was uh, just uh, the the news report, it goes on. But one thing that did um, catch my eye, um, mainly by the 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 picture that is there as well, that. Um, Whenever I read anything in the news about uh, you know um, crop or that there's uh, there's uh, um, less um, uh, there's an issue with you know um, like the like the news reports. Um, whenever I hear anything about uh, crop exports or which is a, a, a uh, which is set for a record high after heavy rains, mm-hmm. I'm always reminded of. Um, the story uh, that we read in the Holy Quran about Prophet uh, Yusuf, mm-hmm. where you know the, there's a, a story behind. There's a um, the whole story. It's a very beautiful uh, story, but it reminds me that you know um, in his time there was also a uh, a um, a famine that was to come. And uh, through the king of that time, the king of that time he saw a dream which he you know he didn't understand fully well. Um, then the story goes on, and then they eventually ask Prophet Joseph to interpret the dream, and he, you know, he he explains to them that this is the meaning, and through in, through interpreting the dream, he was able to devise a plan, and through the dream itself as well, he was able to uh, gain hints that the uh, we are able to, um, if the famine does come, then for the first couple of years before the famine come we, comes, we can. Um, you know, collect everything and keep or store everything for the years to come when famine does come. So, you know, these sort of things, when I read uh, things on the news, it always reminds me of, um, you know, things that we read in the Holy Quran or the, the, the things that we believe in Islam and the thing that religion promotes as well. Yeah. And it's actually beautiful, isn't it, how God Almighty saves uh, his people as well. Um, obviously, like you mentioned, um, the, the 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 dream and its interpretation. Because Prophet Joseph was there, uh, may Allah be pleased with him and have mercy on his soul. 
uh, he was able to 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 listen to of course he was at the right place at the right time Indeed. isn't it Indeed. um he was uh, in the um he was a prisoner at that time but we won't get into the to the whole story because it's quite a, quite a lengthy one but he was a prisoner at the time of the king um or, or the, the 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 in charge basically the governor whatever you want to call it right um and um and uh, at that time uh, the, he he was known that oh it's only so only this person can can give a proper interpretation of dreams um and so the the king um had come to him and and asked him and he was able to to inform them like you mentioned uh, of seven years of uh, of good years uh, and then seven years of drought um and because of that like you mentioned as well they were uh, they were able to devise a plan um and it just goes to show that uh, through these dreams and through um not just dreams but also god almighty speaks through revelation he speaks through uh, signs and he th- speaks through other means as well uh, he converses with us um and that's why we are able to learn so much more about the world um even i mean you don't have to be a religious person to receive some kind of an insight from god um all of these inventions that we see all of these uh, technological advancements all of these ways in which the uh, scientists or, or or people who are discovering new and new things um the way that they are able to 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 grasp such a thing which maybe the 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 average joe cannot even think of is because god almighty has put it in their minds he has put it in their heads um and that's why it's such a beautiful thing in which uh, a, a beautiful way in which god almighty he keeps us up to date according to the times and he allows us to uh, take full advantage of uh, of the things that we see and we have um in in our resources indeed indeed and you know when we look around when we look around the world when we see how uh, mankind has you know progressed um through uh, various efforts uh, just let's take technology for example yeah we see how you know mankind can from sitting from one place can you know like like for example the in a radio station or on tv they can sit from one place they can deliver a speech and then that can that speech can be heard you know in real time all around the world mm-hmm. you know and these things are the in a, in a sense the the a a blessing for you know for for muslims as well for islam as well where we can where the means of um communicating has become much easier where it's easier for one to you know preach the message of islam um sitting from one place i mean you know just 100 years 200 years 300 years ago it was it's, it's impossible for a person to be sitting in one place yeah. well not even 100 years maybe maybe even 40 50 60 70 years ago yeah um you know uh, in the early 1800s as well maybe it's it's uh, for for it to be uh, transmitted in real time you know yeah. live that's something which um, obviously uh, you know looking around technology we see that these are blessings of god um in in a way where we can use these uh, when i say blessings of god i mean that when we when we utilize these things for the uh, for the means of islam for the for the for the um spreading of islam then it becomes a means of blessing for uh, us as well most certainly most certainly and also um just on that note as well uh we can see that these things uh that we, we that we're seeing within like let's say like, like the last century god almighty uh, had, had actually prophesied um about this 1400 years ago at the time of the holy prophet muhammad may the peace and blessings of allah be upon indeed, him indeed. um and it's astonishing i mean even if we go back like you mentioned 70 80 years ago right 
um, or even even less than that, rather. But uh, if we if we go back um, uh, around that time, and uh, you you say to someone, well, you know that there's gonna come a time where you'll be able to by just by looking at a little device that you have, which can fit in the in your pocket. Um, you are able to to communicate, and you're able you're able to see someone and talk to them in real time across the world. Um, they think this person's gone mad. He's Indeed. gone crazy. What's he talking about? Um, and similarly, um, back back then, fourteen hundred years ago, God Almighty, He had prophesied about so many a thing. Uh, when it comes to zoos, when it comes to scriptures, when it comes to the railway, when it comes to so many different things, modes of transport. Um, like people at that time, they, uh, I'm, I'm sure they would have never un- of understood yeah, what uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam is talking about or what God Almighty has actually uh, revealed within the Holy Quran, which is, the, of course, the Holy Scripture of uh, the Muslims, but not just of Muslims, but uh, of everyone, we believe. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? For like going back so many centuries, um, and still there are things which are being, uh, fulfilled today. Indeed. Indeed. I mean, uh, if, if we look uh, today, I mean, being, if, if someone says that, you know, in five or 10 years time, uh, so-and-so technology will be invented, you know, most people will be like, okay, let's wait and see, you know, yeah. and when it does happen, then they'll be like, wow, you know, yeah. so-and-so said, that 10 years ago he said that this is going to happen mm. you know if you go 100 years back if someone says from 100 years f- uh, from now so and so will happen they would still they won't believe him or they might believe him or they'll say alright well, let's wait and see yeah. but being 1400 years ahead of your time you know that's something which you know it speaks volumes exactly exactly yeah. Uh, for example, let's just take um, just two because now we're we're close to uh, the month of Ramadan as well. Mm-hmm. So let's take fasting for example. Um, though fasting was prescribed before uh, Islam as well, the Holy Quran mentions this as well. But the Holy Prophet had uh, made it. Uh, Islam had also you know, taught Muslims that there is a month of Ramadan where they, where those who can fast, those who are uh, you know able to fast. And there is a whole uh, the the Holy Quran speaks about um, this as well. Uh, it says that they should fast. But and now, if we look at today, there's a whole um, there's a whole there's a whole uh, you know like a group of people who th- say you know intimate fasting. Yeah, this is the way to go. This is yeah. the way if you want to stay healthy. This is this is what you do. You eat from this time to this time. But I mean, this as for Muslims, you know, we were told this fourteen hundred years ago. Exactly. We were told about the benefits about for fasting, you know, fourteen hundred years ago. Yeah. Um. You know, there's another example uh, nowadays. There's a lot of people who say, you know, lead lead a simple or minimalistic life, mm-hmm. where they say only have those things with you which you essentially need, and do not uh, clutter your home or do not clutter your lives with you know material things or things that you don't really need that much. And uh, you know what? Well, this is Islam. Fourteen hundred years ago, has said this as well. I mean, the, yeah. there's a narration of the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where he said that, you know, a, a Muslim or you know, he's like a, a traveler in this in this world. You know, exactly. he's he's a. It's uh, and in this sense, one can say that you know, the the as, as we're traveling over here, it means that we're not at our destination. Yeah. We're traveling, so there's there's no point for, uh, one to you know, uh. uh, uh Get, try too, to get too attached, get too to, attached this world, to this it? world and, you know, uh, buy everything, things that they may not need. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm saying I'm not saying that you shouldn't you shouldn't buy things that you, you need. Of course, things that you do need, uh-huh. obviously, things that you need, um, you know, 
have those things that come in handy in your life as well but it's sort of uh, islam sort of saves us saves man from you know saves man mankind humans from going out of the way to you know uh uh, getting everything that man desires and yeah. you know, there must be somewhere where you, you you say okay you know what now i i think i have enough i don't need more i don't need to stretch my hands out too much and uh, you know this is what islam teaches lead a simple uh, simple life which uh, was taught 1400 years ago but yeah. now when we look at today it's you know there's a whole movement people saying this exactly. is the way to go this is how you should live your life and yeah yeah, I mean, as Muslims, you know, we should be grateful that we were told this this stuff fourteen hundred years ago, and um, it's a very it's an eye opening. You know, it speaks it's eye opening and it speaks volumes. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Um, uh, with that, I think we'll begin our first segment for the day. Uh, just a quick reminder for you: the three topics that we're talking about today. Uh, in the first hour, we're going to be addressing well, right now uh, the impact of cell phones on our planet safety um in after the eight o'clock news we'll be addressing how stopping smoking um it can lead to a healthier life um and the, a new discovery last but not least a new discovery uh largest dinosaur prints ever uh, which are found in yorkshire so these are the topics that we will be addressing today uh, if you would like to get involved in any one of these conversations then by all means feel free to do so that remember the number for you as always is is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so just getting straight into this first topic, really, um, more than half of the world's population now use the Internet. So a little energy from that online activity can, of course, add up. Scientists at the UK's Royal Society say that watching videos in HD on mobile phones generates about eight times more harmful greenhouse gases than standard definition. That is uh, SD, of course. Um, greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide create uh, an invisible layer in the air that keeps heat from escaping and warms the earth. This is known as global warming or the greenhouse effect. We have to ensure that the digital revolution supports the climate revolution and we have failed to do so this time. Um, this is what Professor uh, Corinne Lequea has mentioned. Um, the first thing that we wanted to address while talking about this topic um, was in regards to the correlation between cell phones and global warming. Because I mentioned this in the introduction of the show as well, um, Jalees, and it, and it is a quite a, a, a an odd one, isn't it? You wouldn't think that something um, as small as your mobile phone um, can have an impact on global warming, especially since so many of us are using them. Um, in 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 so many houses, you'll find maybe five or six, maybe even more, depending on how many people are within that house. Um, yeah. Phones just just kind of lying around, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and 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 if if these things are accumulating and uh, emitting carbon dioxide and creating uh, even more of a problem for global warming, then of course this is something that does need to be addressed. Well. Scientists at the UK's Royal Society say that watching videos in HD, high definition, on a phone generates about eight times more harmful gases than standard definition, SD. The report 
also suggests owning and using phones for longer before trading them uh, trading them in because the emissions created in making a new device are significant if you change your mobile phone every two years, the building of uh, that new phone represents about half of all the emissions uh, it will create during its lifetime. And of course, we know um, and we can see in chapter 18, verse 8 of the Holy Quran as well, that Muslims have a religious duty to safeguard the world's natural environment. And it states, verily, we have made all that is on the earth as an ornament for it, that we may try them to which, as to which of them is best in conduct. And this brings us back to what we were just addressing at the end of the, the, the news roundup, isn't it, Jalees, that in regards to uh, leave, uh, living a, a, a simplistic lifestyle, uh, lifestyle sorry, with, with no sort of ostentation, no uh, boasting off and, and, and showing off and all of these things, because if if we are getting mobile phones uh, 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 new mobile phones on an annual basis um every year whenever a new uh phone comes out if you're uh, with with android or with apple or with with any other uh, com- uh company um if you if you are getting a new one whenever the the new line comes out then of course um, that's that's not really good for the planet now, is it? And and that's why um, so many so many brands um, and manufacturers have said that you can trade in your old, old mobile phones and and maybe you'll get a discount towards your new one. And they've sort of maybe uh, put in some kind of incentives in which they can better the situation. I, I believe many 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 companies have also um said that uh, or well, not just said that they, they they allow you to buy used phones as well like they mm. they call it refurbished phones isn't it Indeed. um and uh, they they sell that uh, at a, at a at a lower price than the 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 RRP um so of course we do have such things in place um but this is really a message i i guess to to those individuals who um, like I said, on an annual basis, whenever the new line comes out, uh, when the ne- whenever the new model comes out, then then they go out and buy it. And I think maybe that is. Oh, I don't just think. I I know, and we can see from this article as well that this is a, a big issue. Indeed, indeed. I mean, um, you mentioned uh, that you know there's certain households that may have you know more than five or. But you know, we we should. Uh, uh, um, there's a couple of people who who are out there who may even have uh, two phones for themselves. Yeah. As in, you, uh, we we only you only really really need one unless yeah. it's uh, you know for uh, different purposes, uh, work or I know I know some work they they do provide such devices for their employees. But uh, yeah, the, the and uh, this is something that when you do use your phone, it's something you don't really think about that um, using your phone or watching uh, something on your phone. Um, can cause uh, some harm to the environment, and uh, obviously, you know, as uh, as Muslims, um, uh, you know, uh, we have a you know a religious duty to safeguard the world's you know natural environment, and um, you know the Holy Prophet, uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. You know, he once said, which is such a beautiful narration, that he said that, and this is very important for you know Muslims as well. You know, that he said that um, the earth. You know, has been made for me a masjid, a place of uh, uh, praying and 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 pure, 
And this is one of the uh, distinctions that was granted to the Holy Prophet. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And when we when we read this narration, we should understand that as Muslims, the earth um, has been made for us as a play uh, for, for Muslims uh, to a place where we can pray um, at any place, whether it be at a f- outside in the open air, uh, in the field. And when you when you have this mindset that you're you're in the earth. You're walking around, and this is a place where you can pray as well. This should naturally ha- help some help a Muslim um, to look after the environment, because obviously, when we when we when we uh, look at at our mosque or when we go to our mosques, we obviously want to keep the mosque clean as well, because a clean environment is also is o- obviously a healthy environment as well. But when we look at the earth, as Muslims, we have a duty to safeguard the natural environment of the earth and uh, just as the uh, n- uh, the narration that i mentioned that you know the the uh, the earth has been made a you know a masjid and a place of a uh, a pure place uh, so as muslims we should keep this place um, we should keep the earth pure um, especially because you know there are there are many times where um, I remember sometimes where I would go to you know the park when I was a, a kid. When I would go to the park, I'll play football with my friends. Uh, often you would see you know some there are sometimes some Muslims who might be uh, a, a a Muslim man or two who might be praying in the corner of the field. I've actually seen this as well, and mm-hmm. this is uh, one thing which um, it's 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 a, it's a one thing that helps man that you know okay. So if this mosque. If this earth is made a place where you we can pray to God, uh, wherever we may, wherever we may be, then it is our duty also as well to you know keep it clean as well. Oh, most certainly, definitely. Um, uh, we'll be speaking more about uh, the Islamic side of things uh, in regards to this topic, um, of course, in a short while. Uh, but before we do so, we do have with us on the line our first guest for the show, Dr. Daniel Corbell, uh, Lead of Science Policy Unit um, of, uh, uh, at Royal Society of Chemistry. Uh, Dr. Daniel Corbell leads, uh, like I mentioned, the, the Royal Society of Ch- uh, Chemistry's Science po- Policy Unit, which brings together chemistry evidence on health and sustainability themes. Um, making it uh, making it accessible to decision makers to highlight the key challenges and potential solutions. Dan has a background in the life sciences. Following his postdoctoral research, Dan worked in advisory and leadership roles for a range of organisations in the charity and public sectors, including the Wellcome Trust, the UK Research Councils, and the British Council, where he was global head of science. Um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us today. Uh, we're speaking about a very interesting topic, uh, something which is very close to our hearts uh, because of, uh, of course, the planet's safety. Um, but we're, we're, we're talking specifically about the impact of cell phones and what that has um, on the environment and on global warming as well as a whole. Um, could you please tell us a little bit about the Precious Elements campaign, please? Yes, sure. So um, we started that in 2019, which was a big anniversary for chemistry, 150 years of the periodic table of elements. And this gave us really the idea for our campaign. And in in that campaign, we wanted to draw attention to the fact that all the tech devices we use every day, our, our cell phones, our tablets, our laptops, and so on, they're powered by 
a set of chemical elements with very specialized, very clever properties. Mm-hmm. But the big issue is that the global supply of some of these materials um, is at risk. And this may affect their availability and down the line also affect product prices um, as different sectors compete for these materials. And um, these are often called critical minerals. And we have uh, a list of them in the UK. And many people will have heard of, of lithium, maybe, um, that you need in electric car batteries, but they're also um, in, in phone batteries and, and laptop batteries. Lithium is just one of these precious elements. Um, there are others like indium, which is uh, in touch screens, and tin, which is in circuit boards. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. Um, and also, uh, Dr. Korbel, uh, how and why uh, does the Precious Elements campaign advocate for more sustainable electronics? Well, so less than 20% of electronic waste um, gets recycled uh, around the globe. And most of the, the precious elements I talked about are simply lost forever, be that in, in landfill or when the waste gets burned. And this is simply unsustainable, um, in particular because um, we're likely to need more, more and more of them as we move to using more solar panels, more wind power, more electric vehicles and all of these technologies rely on these precious elements and that's why we wanted uh, to empower consumers to to use and to pass on their their devices their phones their laptops in more sustainable ways so that these precious elements can be kept in circulation for longer and we reduce our reliance on mining them from the ground yeah. and we we found there's really um real appetite among people uh, for more sustainable sustainable choices and uh, most most people are keen to keep these devices for longer but they feel it's too expensive to uh, to have them repaired or too difficult um, and uh, keeping them in the drawers makes them feel unco- uncomfortable as well when they're unused yeah. it's, um, it's unclear what, what to do with them so we uh, we've put together a website on all of these issues that really unpacks um, uh, these surveys and what we found from people's opinions on on sustainability, but it talks also about these uh, precious elements and what each of us can do uh, to help overcome uh, the issues I described. Yeah. So that's sustainability.rsc.org. Uh-huh. Awesome. Um, you, you mentioned uh, when it's too expensive to repair uh, phones and things of that sort as well. I mean, uh, my next question was going to be what benefits are there to recycling and uh, or, or even donating electronic gadgets for the environment? And we mentioned in our introduction of this segment um, that many people, uh, many uh, many manufacturers and many uh, companies have have said that you can trade in your old phone and you maybe um, get uh, get some sort of a discount towards your next phone and things of that sort. These kind of um, things, but uh, we we see that, uh, like you mentioned. When, when you're repairing a phone, sometimes it's so expensive, even if you have the insurance for that company, right? They, you might, they might say that, oh, well, you, we'll repair it, but you still need to pay like, a, I don't know, a hundred pound startup, a, a fee or whatever. Um, wh- wh- what do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I, thank you for, for raising that. That's an excellent question, because I think um, these kind of take-back schemes are an integral part of how we how we manage these resources. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I feel that one of the most important things to do is really to slow down our consumption of these materials, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we, they don't have to be extracted, processed, recycled at the end of uh, a gadget's life um, because all of this requires energy and has an environmental impact. 
So, I mean, getting them back into circulation using recycling is important because we don't want to lose these uh, these materials. Recovering that from waste um, means that we don't have to dig up that much in traditional mining. But really, um, recycling is, is um, uh, only, only one thing. Uh, the, it's not necessarily the first thing we need to think about. We should also think about how to consume less of these materials. And mm. as you say, what that means for consumers is that... Um, they should um, consider maybe donating devices. Uh, there, there are great charities that do that. There are these take-back schemes. You can make some money. It's not. It's it's not a lot. But don't leave them in your in your drawers and your mm-hmm. cupboards. Don't bin them. Also, one one thing that that I've been trying to do over the years is really not upgrading every two years. Uh, trying to to stretch it out, maybe even two three years, keeping your your cell phone for a little bit longer. Yeah. That will make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, and and also it, the 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 phones don't really change that much uh, every year. I mean, a, a lot of people you you see them and they they always have the latest phone, um, and 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 uh, yeah, you you can simply wait uh, another year, another two years, uh, 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 even, um, and it, and and still the the difference between the phones wouldn't be that uh, that great. Um, obviously, there's a little bit of uh, uh, software updates and this and that, but even that happens happens within the old phones as well it may not be as fast or as quick but uh, but i guess it, it, and i don't just guess it does do the same job um so it's not all about updating uh, and upgrading every year or every other year also um lastly uh, dr corbell um as 85% to 95% of a smartphone's overall carbon footprint is created during manufacturing how can the production process be improved do you think that's, a, that's a, an interesting question. There, as you say, there are data that suggest the, the manufacturing of tech devices can have significant greenhouse gas emissions. And so a first thing manufacturers can do is to um, increase the, the efficiency of their of the processes, the resource efficiency. That means really using the minimum amount of materials they can get away with to make the, the product. Um, but really that will only get them that far. Uh-huh. And you could also use what we call green chemistry to to improve the the chemical processes in the, in the manufacturing. That means maybe doing things at lower temperatures, replacing nasty solvents with more environmentally friendly ones, and so on. But one other really important uh, thing for manufacturers to do is to understand their supply chains better. They they really should demand to see environmental impact data from the different suppliers of say their speaker components or screen components and then they can make decisions about which supplier provides the best balance between quality cost and environmental impact so i think there's a there's a big responsibility um manufacturers have to to get on top of their supply chains yeah but unfortunately that information isn't really available across the board at the moment so we really need more research and investment in this area yeah yeah no no definitely definitely um thank you uh, dr corbel for, for for being with us and answering our questions and sharing uh, with us your insights in regards to this topic uh, a lot of education was shared and i'm sure many of the uh, the, the listeners will will have uh, received that uh, uh, well uh, so thank you once again and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Good day to you. Likewise. Thank you. Bye-bye.
is the number for you. That was Dr. Daniel Corbell, um, who leads the Royal Society of Chemistry's Science Policy Unit, which brings together chemistry evidence on health and sustainability themes, making it accessible to decision makers to highlight the key challenges and potential solutions. Um, And uh, and, uh, quite an insightful uh, conversation, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Um, Just... Excuse me, sorry. Just moving on, we've got um, Izzy Monk, um, who's a Royal Society of Chemistry. Um, uh, uh, as uh, he's, he'll be, we'll be speaking to him next. Um, so Izzy Monk is a policy advisor for the environment at the Royal Society of Chemistry, leading the work in critical minerals. Um, Izzy Monk, thank you for joining us and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Um, so just getting straight into it, uh, I think the first question, <coughs> excuse me, the first question is what um, detrimental effects do, you know, electronic gadgets have on the environment? Uh, well, electronic gadgets are obviously made of various different materials um, and many of them use a wide mix of them too in a single product. So, for example, a smartphone can use around 80% of the elements on the periodic table. Um, and we also need lots of different materials to become greener, for example, to make solar panels, to make wind turbines, to make electric vehicles. But at the moment, the, the global extraction and processing of natural resources, in other words, all the materials, the, the fuels, the food that we use, accounts for around 50% of our global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and the extraction of raw materials is also accelerating, and it's thought it will probably reach around 190 billion tonnes by 2060. Um, wow. And as it becomes harder and less efficient to extract some of these materials, the processes use more energy, uh, and also more waste is produced. Um, which means that we then in turn need to deal with that waste to avoid environmental impacts such as the the pollution of water sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important not just just to think about greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so the extraction process for some elements like lithium, uh, so for our electric vehicles and in, in phone batteries and so on, is particularly water intensive, um, and so are very vulnerable to water stress, making the processes uh, potentially exposed to climate risks in the future. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um... Uh, so, so just uh, just on that, I think what uh, why is um, why is e-waste uh, management important? <coughs> so, um, electronic waste or e-waste includes all the lots of different products that you have around your home. So, from large appliances like washing machines and fridges to smaller items, irons, toasters, children's toys, and obviously the smartphones and laptops that we're we're talking about particularly this morning. Um, and um, this is the fastest growing waste stream in the world and we have what uh, some people refer to as an e-waste mountain or a tsunami of e-waste um, and unfortunately the UK is one of the largest producers of e-waste globally uh, so when broken or unwanted electronics end up in landfill then toxic or hazardous substances like mercury and lead can leach out into the water supply so those environmental impacts are not disposing of e-waste properly um, but also when electronic goods are thrown in the bin rather than the cycle, uh, recycled, mm-hmm. um, we lose the valuable materials that are contained within them. And mm. as Dan said, that some of those materials are, are classed as critical. We really need them for um, things like greener technology. Um, and so um, it's important that we aren't just losing those materials. Um, and so being able to recycle um, our e-waste is really key. Indeed, indeed. Um, so uh, <clears throat> the, the Precious Elements campaign, 
um, you know, urges uh, the need for more uh, sustainable electronics. Um, what solutions would you say there are? Well, we can think of um, stockpiles of electronic waste as an urban mine, um, which means that valuable materials like gold, lithium, cobalt, etc., can be recovered from the uh, from the electronic waste in a process called urban mining, um, and that means that those materials can then be used again in new products. And urban mining, alongside repair and reuse, would help us move away from the current what's called linear economy where we take resources we make them into something else we use that product and then we waste them we just throw them away hmm. to what's called a circular economy for these materials um, so in a circular economy we're thinking really carefully about how we manage resources how we make and use products and what we do with the materials that they contain afterwards because we really want to keep those valuable materials uh, circulating as a high as a high value as possible um, for a couple of reasons uh, particularly because it helps to reduce the energy requirements and environmental impacts of, of uh, mining and processing because it reduces the reliance on the need for the extraction of these primary materials. Um, and we're using, therefore, secondary materials um, recover from e-waste in the production of new goods. Um, and so some of what needs to be done to make electronics more sustainable, it often feels out of our hands as our, as consumers. Um, however, if you're listening along thinking about what you can do with a mobile phone that you might have sat in a drawer, um, it's worth thinking through what's called the waste hierarchy. So can your phone be donated or sold and therefore reused by someone else or can it be repaired? Mm -hmm. um, and then if reuse and repair is not possible, then it absolutely needs to be recycled. Um, mm. The most important thing is not to put it in the general household bin because it means uh, that will probably end up in, in landfill and we've lost those materials. Indeed, indeed. Um, just a quick one. I think we, uh, time is, isn't on our side. Um, just one last question. Um, as just over 17% of the world's e-waste is uh, properly recycled, uh, what can be done to improve this? Well, uh, thinking about what can be done in the UK, there, there are two aspects to this. One is to make sure that e-waste is entering the recycling system, and the other is to mm. make sure that it's easy and efficient to recycle it as well, uh, while also thinking about the environmental impact of that. So um, one of the asks that we have for government is to build and invest in UK uh, waste and, and recycling infrastructure, uh, because at the moment the picture is really patchy for and can confusing for consumers um, and so some local authorities only collect small tech devices um, and some um, you have to take them to a curbside uh, sorry to a, to a recycling centre uh, so we need to be able to to um, get people to be able to recycle their electronics yeah. uh, and then and chemical sciences then have a huge role to play in, in sort of the actual products and recycling processes themselves as well mm. um, and obviously um, the chemical sciences there can be part of the solution on things like uh, alternative materials that we need to use in products so we don't necessarily have to use such critical ones indeed 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 um easy monk thank you for joining us um and have a lovely day and a lovely week ahead thank you, thank you very much thank you very much peace be upon you that was easy monk from the royal society of chemistry Yes, and with that, uh, we'll be coming to an end for this first segment. Uh, don't go anywhere. Uh, when we when we join back, we'll be speaking about stopping smoking for a healthier life. Here's the 8 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. 
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Uh, just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the 7th of March 2023. Um, we were discussing um, the impact of cell phones on our planet's safety. Um, and we're going to be moving on to stop smoking for a healthier life. Um, and uh, the last segment for the day is going to be a new discovery on the largest dinosaur print ever in Yorkshire. So that is what we are going to be addressing today. Um, we, 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 if you are just tuning in, um, then uh, in the first segment where we were talking about cell phones um, and how they can make a difference, um, why uh, cell phones cause carbon emissions and e-waste problems and, and uh, how... Uh, cell phones pollute the environment and what tips can be done to reduce the harmful effects of cell phones to to save our planet as well. I think one uh, last um, piece of advice that we'd like to give uh, and just echoing what we mentioned earlier as well was that uh, we should be careful um, that we do not... um, um, do, uh, do, do we, that we do not uh, try to get the the latest um, phones uh, and other devices whenever we feel as if uh, we need to. I mean, when we need to, then that is okay. But uh, whenever we see that there's a new phone out and we, we, we want to get it just because it's the latest phone, uh, that is not the right way. And of course, um, with that is a bit of maybe ostentation involved as well. And we should always, uh, like you mentioned in the beginning of the show as well, um be be uh, live modest uh, lives um and uh, be content with what we have um and then every 3 or 4 years or whenever we feel uh, as if it is time now uh, eventually to get a new phone then we can do so but of course it doesn't have to be an annual thing um, and with that, we'll be going to, straight to our next segment. Based on research presented at the 2022 ESC Congress, smokers have weaker hearts than non-smokers. Uh, the study found that smoking can damage their heart function. According to the to the World Health Organization, tobacco kills more than 8 million people every year. And half are caused by um, a, cardio, a cardiovascular disease, um, such as heart attacks and strokes. More than 80% of the 1.3 billion tobacco users uh, worldwide live in low- and middle-income countries, so where the burden of tobacco-related disease and death is heaviest. Um, so just getting straight into this discussion, um, Jalise, what, what diseases are caused by cigarette smoking? Uh, and of course, speaking about nicotine as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, first and foremost, you know, nicotine is not what you know causes the lung damage. Um, rather, it's the uh, um, formation of tar that has you know detrimental effects on the lungs. Uh, you know, uh, smoking you know has been found uh, to cause a uh, to cause many uh, diseases, including you know cancer heart disease lung disease um you know and it's 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 something which uh you know those who 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 do suffer from these things due to smoking uh when you when 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 you when you see them it's 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 a it's it's a, it's a lesson you can learn from that you know if if a person is is goes through a heart disease or lung disease solely because he or he or she or a person uh, has a habit of smoking that's that's a really eye opener i mean you can avoid 
these sort of um, illnesses just by you know avoiding uh, this uh, this unhealthy habit. Uh, you know, smoking has also been uh, found to you know increase uh, the risk of uh, developing other conditions and diseases. You know, such as um, diseases that are related to uh, eye, uh, eyes and uh, the vision um, and uh, it also attacks. Uh, there's a, there's a disease that can come from it which causes um, the immune system to attack itself and cause inflammation and swelling around the joints. You know these sort of things are. You know when you when you read about these, when you it, it's it's something. It's an eye opening uh, reality. You know mm. that uh, there are a lot of things that uh, you can simply avoid. Um, you know, a lot of diseases you could one a person could avoid if they simply just uh, you know do not follow the this uh, this uh, for, uh, if they do not just follow this unhealthy uh, uh, habit. Um, but I mean, m- moving on to other sort of as in like other things that smoking uh, causes. You know, there's other diseases um, which include the you know um, atherosclerosis and uh, hypertension and even high. Uh, blood pressure you know the uh, all of these diseases are related to uh, smoking and it's uh, you know when you when you read about it when you hear about it it's something which um, you know really puts uh, op- open someone's mind I mean because in in every in, in your day-to-day life uh, you know in everyone's life when you're going to when you're w- walking to the work when you're taking the public uh, transport you're you're bound to find a person who is you know um, who 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 is smoking maybe on their way to work or whatever and even the even just uh, the uh, secondhand smoking which you know just uh, being a near person who 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 is smoking can also have you know uh, uh, bad uh, outcomes for you know for the person as well even if they're not directly smoking they 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 just being around a person who is smoking is something which is not healthy for a person so you can just imagine after obviously after hearing about all these you know uh, linked diseases to smoke all these uh, diseases that are linked to smoking hearing this you can find how much of a habit it is which you know everyone should you know should refrain from yeah yeah no no most definitely um even if we go to the promised messiah uh, upon whom be peace the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community he termed tobacco as a smoke uh, that is detrimental to one's health and he warned, warned against the perils of alcohol, calling it uh, the principal uh, malevolent, uh, malevolent, sorry. Um, and his holiness repeatedly warned against the perils of the lagh. And lagh uh, is uh, an Arabic term which uh, ref- means meaningless, vain and serving no purpose. Um, and he mentioned that this, uh, the practice of smoking cigarettes is leading to more addictive and dangerous intoxicants as well. And smoking is, of course, bad for the health. Uh, we'll be just listening to just a very short uh, audio clip uh, of the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in which he uh, answers a question related to the notion of smoking in Islam um, and whether it is allowed or not. Smoke is not religiously forbidden in Islam, and Ahmadiyyat is Islam, so it is not forbidden in Islam. But because it's bad for health, so it is discouraged very strongly. Thank you. Poisons are not forbidden, are they? Poisons are not forbidden in Islam. Poisons. Poisons. Yes. Are they forbidden? No. 
there are many sort of dirty foods which are not even mentioned in the Quran or in traditions which are not forbidden but your own uh, sense of discrimination would tell you that this food is not good for me that food is good bad for, bad for me and so on and so forth so some choices are left to you to make uh, very clear from from that audio clip of uh, His Holiness the Fourth Caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim Community, Hazrat Mirza Tahiram, and may Allah have mercy on his soul. Uh, in regards to what Islam believes about smoking, and um, the next question that we wanted to sort of address over here is that how does smoking work uh, in damaging lung and heart function? Well, the primary way in which smoking affects uh, and damages the lungs is by damaging the airways. Damage to airways usually starts from uh, the irritation caused by the smoke itself and over time this becomes progressively worse with symptoms such as uh, severe and constant coughing and irritation to lung tissue. When irritation to the tender tissues inside our bodies become worse, this can lead to COPD and that is uh, also caused by the destruction of the alveoli, uh, which are the small sacs found in the lungs. Alveoli are vital for lung functions um, as they are the primary site for the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide in and out of the lungs. Uh, Therefore, when they become damaged, naturally our ability to breathe to our lungs full capacity is also affected. Smoking causes damage to the heart uh, because it causes buildup of plaque in our blood vessels. And when our blood vessels are blocked up, they become narrower, which can eventually cause coronary heart disease, uh, one of the most common heart diseases in the world. Um, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, whatever causes intoxication in large amounts, a small amount of it is also Unlawful. So this answers the question of, uh, of, uh, of, for instance, um, uh, substance abuse and drugs such as uh, marijuana and other such things, in which uh, sometimes you'll hear people saying that uh, um, I, I don't take it to the extent of getting intoxicated, uh, but rather I just have a little bit uh, just for the fun or the pleasure or whatever, right? But, uh, but even that, we can see from this tradition and narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that even that is also unlawful um, within Islam. Indeed. Um, Jalees, what is, uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier about uh, secondhand smoking or, or passive smoking even. Um, uh, you'll, uh, you, you must have heard uh, a lot of times before as well that uh, people saying that passive smoking is actually worse than, uh, than, than smoking as well. And people say that there are, there are many uh, disadvantages to that and uh, uh, which can cause uh, a lot of health uh, problems as well. How much of this is true? Uh, and uh, uh, I mean, what, what's, what's, the, what's the truth behind this, basically? Uh, so basically, passive smoking and... Um you know, active smoking. You know, have they have they do have similar effects on a person. Mm-hmm. However, however, uh, you know, directly smoking a cigarette is you know it's worse for your health, and um, as it is done more regular, uh, it's 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 more done. It's done regularly and at high levels as well. Um, you know, uh, tobacco uh, tobacco smoke itself uh, contains almost uh, seven thousand, if I'm not wrong, seven thousand harmful chemicals. Uh, with more than seventy uh, being cancerous, you know, so 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 by breathing this in, you know, the effect can be just as uh, detrimental 
or it can it can have just as the same uh, impact as one who is you know directly uh, smoking you know even uh, world health organization you know they uh, estimates uh, that 1 million people a year die from passive smoking right however uh, the number of those who actively smoke is much greater sitting at around probably 7 million so i mean um wh- where it doesn't have um uh, you know obviously the uh, it, it's not passive smoking isn't um uh, it has its uh you know uh, bad outcomes as well and um you know i wouldn't say it's far worse you know uh, passive smoking because obviously smoking directly has uh, more health issues but path- uh, passive smoking does um cause you know uh, bad health as well um it has been seen that you know adults um who uh, passively smoke uh, the risk of certain diseases is it's greatly increased and um you know uh, such as you know like uh, problems with breathing uh, like diseases linked with breathing or l- uh, lung cancer and various other uh, diseases relating to the heart so uh, yeah passive smoking um does have you know dangerous um outcomes as well and that's why it's important that you know um you try to avoid any areas where you may feel um, like if you're walking and you, uh, you just try try your best to avoid these sort of things. I know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, walking down the street, it's it's uh, you you don't always know, you don't always see someone who's smoking. You you see him when when you when you probably smell it or something. Yeah. But obviously, when if you if if a person can try to avoid, then uh, that that would be the best thing to do. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Uh, and with that, we have our next guest uh, with us uh, on the line, uh, John Waldron, uh, who is the policy manager at the public health charity Ash um, Action on Smoking and Health. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning, and welcome to the breakfast show. Good morning. It's good to be here, uh, and it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on with us. Thank you, um, John. We're, we're speaking about uh, stop smoking for for a healthier life. Um, of course, a very uh, a, a topic which I think many of us already know a fair bit about because it's uh, so mainstream and even on the packages there's there's so many uh, images to illustrate the negative uh, and the ill effects of smoking and also um, how, how bad it is for our health. Um, but to talk more about this and to understand an even uh, in-depth um, uh, um, behind all of this uh, this conversation and this topic, we wanted to ask you a few questions. And the first one being smoking has a negative impact on many parts of the body. However, which part in particular suffers uh, the, the most damage from this? So that's a really good question. Um so as you, as you say, smoking does have a negative impact on pretty much every part of the body. Tobacco is the, the only legal product which kills over half of all uh, long-term users when it's used as intended by the manufacturer. And there's no other legal consumer product which um, has that kind of impact. And if there was, it would obviously be banned uh, straight away. Uh, smoking kills around 100,000 people in the UK every year. Um, and it, you know, it harms every part of the body. It's the biggest cause of cancer, but the most affected part of the body uh, is probably the lungs because when you inhale tobacco smoke, you're inhaling a tar, carbon monoxide, and a host of other toxic chemicals which do real harm to your respiratory system. So uh, smoking is responsible for around three quarters of lung cancer cases and is a leading cause of respiratory disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, 
um, a whole range of diseases like that. It also has a really significant impact on the on the heart and on the brain and is uh, the leading cause of strokes and heart attacks. And what's less well known is the link between smoking uh, and dementia. So smoking mm-hmm. significantly increases the risk of developing dementia in later life. And quitting smoking is actually one of the most important steps that people who smoke can take to reduce their risk uh, of dementia uh, in later life. And kind of taken together, all of these harms contribute to long-term smokers needing social care around 10 years earlier than non-smokers. So, you know, that's helped with things like getting around the house, going to the toilet, doing basic tasks. And ultimately, uh, lifetime smokers die around 10 years earlier than non-smokers. So the, the negative impact really can't be overstated. Yeah, I mean, and they, they far outweigh uh, any positives that someone can potentially think of. I, I mean, I can't really think of any, but uh, but, 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 but yeah. How, and, and the next question we wanted to ask you was, how do smoking cessation programs help people uh, to stop smoking? Because obviously, like you said, stopping smoking is a crucial thing uh, if you want to uh, long uh, 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 make your life longer. Um, and of course, there's so many other benefits, uh, health benefits that we can see from this. Because, like we mentioned in the uh, the earlier part of this this uh, discussion, um, there's so many different parts of our body which are which are affected by this. It's not just our lungs, for instance, isn't it? it yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, smoking cessation programs, you know, are incredibly. Uh, effective, incredibly valuable for helping people to quit. So we know that smokers, uh, the people who smoke who quit using these uh, smoking cessation programs are around three times more likely to successfully quit mm-hmm. than people who just try and quit by themselves. Um, so the majority of people who do quit smoking do quit by themselves, but it tends to take them a lot more attempts than people than who use these services. And the reason these services are effective is because they rely on tried and tested ways to quit smoking you know, which involves trained advisors providing regular uh, face-to-face or remote support and advice to, to smokers to help them quit, along with providing uh, stop smoking medications like nicotine patches and gum. And these services help people to set a four-week quit target for not smoking for four weeks, because we know that people who manage to quit for four weeks are uh, the most likely to, to quit for good, to quit long-term. Mm-hmm. And these services are, are free to access and they're provided by local councils and are now also being rolled out uh, in the NHS, in hospitals and for pregnant women. And people can find uh, their local stop smoking service by searching NHS quit smoking and you can enter your postcode and see uh, what the services are near you. And I would encourage all smokers to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, uh, John, what are the key challenges uh, that prevent smokers from adopting healthier lifestyles, do you think? That's a really good question. Um, I think first and foremost, we need to recognize that uh, smoking is an incredibly powerful addiction that most people pick up during childhood, which makes it uh, really difficult to stop. And it's that addiction that's the main challenge. So when you quit, and obviously any smoker will know this, when you quit, you have uh, withdrawal symptoms, which can be really overwhelming and can make you crave a cigarette, which is why the NHS recommends uh, that people who want to quit smoking should use stop smoking medications like patches and gum or even an e-cigarette to help manage those withdrawal symptoms and help get them through uh, that initial uh, few days or weeks, which are the toughest. And one of the other big challenges um, that probably doesn't get discussed enough is that people who smoke tend to live with or work with or socialize with other people who also smoke and have often grown up in households where um, either a parent or a sibling is smoking. And that means that for them, smoking is much more normalized. And if they do manage to quit, um, then there's a good chance they might still be exposed to people smoking around them, which you know really makes it tough not to relapse. 
but but we know the benefits of of quitting uh, despite these challenges are massive so you know in the long term you're going to see significant reductions in your risk of serious diseases like cancer heart disease dementia in the short term your breathing is going to get easier your circulation gets better and there's also good evidence that people's mental health and well-being improves when they quit smoking partly because they aren't stuck in that uh, cycle of addiction and withdrawal and cravings and there's also a really big financial benefit so the average smoker will save around uh, £2,500 a year um, if they quit which is you know a pretty large amount of money yeah. so while there are lots of of course there are challenges for smokers who want to quit support is available for people through stop smoking services um, and the benefits of quitting really are worth it yeah no no definitely uh we, we we can't stress that point enough um and 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 like you said there are many uh schemes out there uh, many ways in which people can take that aid and and assist them in uh trying to quit it's all about utilizing them um yeah. and uh, and making proper use of them as well um many young people have started using vapes uh is it healthier uh is it is it a healthy alternative compared to traditional cigarettes so just starting with uh, with vaping safety, and then I'll move on to the young people issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so the evidence is, is pretty clear now that compared to tobacco or cigarettes, vaping is much less harmful than smoking, although not entirely risk-free. So last year, the UK government published a major um, review of the evidence around vaping, which was led by academics at King's College London. And this looked at all the available evidence from around the world and concluded that vaping poses a small fraction of the risk of smoking uh, in the short and medium term, although we don't know what the the long-term risks are yet because they haven't been around long enough. Yeah. Um, and e-cigarettes do have a really important role to play in helping adult smokers quit. So they're currently the most popular uh, quitting aid in England, and we have really good quality evidence showing that they are a really effective so- smoking cessation tool. But um, they're not something we would want to see being used by young people or by non-smokers. So it's true that there has been an increase in youth vaping rates in the last couple of years. So rates among uh, 11 to 17-year-olds have pretty much more than doubled from around 3.3% in 2021 to 7% in 2022, which is obviously concerning uh, and needs to be addressed. But it's important to put this figure into context. Uh, So e-cigarette use among under-18s who've never smoked still remains really, really low. So it's less than 2% of that group who are who are using an e-cigarette month, at least monthly and over 80 percent of under 18s have never tried an e-cigarette um, and the vast majority of those who have used e-cigarettes are people who are already smoking or have already tried traditional cigarettes so while vaping under among under 18s is more common than it used to be it's still relatively uncommon um, and it's mainly confined to older teenagers but of course that doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned and we shouldn't be taking action to limit Uh, the risks of youth uptake. So, for example, single-use or disposable e-cigarettes, which have been in the news quite a lot recently, um, are the most popular product among under-18s who vape. So around half of under-18s who vape are using disposable e-cigarettes, and that's um, because they're they're brightly coloured, they're they're very appealing, they're cheap, easy to access, uh, come in a variety of kind of sweet and fruit flavours. So they've clearly got an appeal to young people, and that's why we've called for these products to be uh, taxed more heavily to make them uh, less affordable to under 18s and the government could also do more to regulate the way that e-cigarettes are marketed to reduce their appeal to children so things like banning the use of cartoon characters and bright colors on the packaging uh, and doing more to crack down on shops that sell these products to children because we know that 
Um, the majority of children who, who do use e-cigarettes, they say they get them from shops despite it being illegal to sell to under 18. So there's a problem there. So whilst uh, vaping isn't risk-free and we don't want young people, particularly non-smokers, to do it, it's important not to kind of overstate the scale of the problem and to remember that smoking and exposure to toxic secondhand smoke from cigarettes is still the biggest threat to child health. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I mean, like you mentioned, taxing um, it uh, and making it more more expensive is obviously uh, one way to go. And according to the World Health Organization, they said that play, uh, placing high taxes on, on tobacco is, is the single most effective way to reduce tobacco use because mm-hmm. smokers living in low income countries, which we mentioned earlier, um, especially those who are young, respond quicker to, 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 to increase prices of tobacco and therefore uh, are likely to reduce the consumption and, and get rid of their habits bits as well um and uh, uh, but another thing that you mentioned it was just quite worrying actually uh is that in regards to the under 18s who are um who are using uh, vapes and who have uh, who maybe um obviously you mentioned that i think 80% or so are are those uh, individuals who have uh, smoked before uh, and then they use that um which is good in the sense that it's not people who are being introduced to smoking through vape, uh, through vaping, and they're getting into it through that because obviously that's very negative. Um, but at the same time, it's 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 quite astonishing how how many people uh, under 18s are smoking in the first place. For them to be smoking uh, proper cigarettes and then moving on to, to 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 vapes at such a such a young age, which is also uh, quite alarming as well. Um, John, the last question that I wanted to ask you was, if smoking is so harmful, uh, the million dollar question actually, why has its use not been banned yet? So that's, a, again, a really good question. And this would have probably been, banning it would have probably been a great idea uh, when tobacco and, and cigarettes were first introduced onto the market, yeah, maybe, yeah. I don't know, about 100 years ago. Um, but it wouldn't work now because you have around 15% of people in the UK um, are addicted smokers among certain groups, like lower income groups, people with mental health conditions, the rates are much higher. So you have a really substantial population of um, addicted smokers who, you know, you can't just expect these people, if you withdraw that product overnight, you can't just expect these people to stop Mm -hmm. um, for all the reasons that, that I've already mentioned. And we actually know this wouldn't work because it's been tried and failed mm-hmm. in, in Bhutan in 2004. Oh, okay. So um, after the ban was introduced, people in Bhutan carried on smoking, but their, a thriving black market emerged oh. to kind of to feed uh, the market for tobacco. And smoking rates actually went up in Bhutan after the ban was introduced, particularly oh. among children. Whereas if you look at the UK in the same time period, we've been really successful in reducing smoking rates from around, I think, 25% in the year 2000 to 15% now, oh. the fastest, one of the fastest declines in Europe yeah. um, we've seen in the UK, and that's been done by keeping you know tobacco legal, but strictly regulating it. So we already have um, tried and tested methods that have led to these big reductions in smoking rates. And you know, you mentioned taxation, which has been a key one, um, gradually increasing the tax on tobacco over the last few decades. We've also had a big expansion of stop smoking services to kind of support lots of people to quit, mass media campaigns like Stoptober, which uh, motivate people to quit, um, in addition to changes to the law, like the ban on smoking in public places in 2007, which helped to uh, reduce people's exposure to secondhand smoke and really denormalize smoking as a, as a normal social activity. We also had things like the introduction of plain or standard tobacco packaging in 2015, 
which helped to reduce the appeal of tobacco and make it less appealing, especially to, to children. And part of the problem we have now and part of the reason that smoking rates aren't falling as fast as we want them to or as fast as we need them to if we're going to achieve the government's ambition of a smoke-free England by 2030 is that the funding for the tobacco control, stop smoking services, mass media campaigns has been cut really significantly over the last decade. So the funding for stop smoking services has fallen by around 40% since mm-hmm. 2015. And for mass media campaigns, the funding's been cut by over 90% over the last decade. So that really um, you know, re- reduces how many people these interventions can support to quit smoking. And this is why uh, Ash and the public health community are calling on the government to uh, make the tobacco companies that created this epidemic in the first place and continue to profit from it, uh, to make them pay for the costs of fixing it. And the government could do that by imposing a levy on tobacco manufacturers, which are some of the most profitable companies in the world, yeah. uh, to raise the money that we need to you know, pay for all those services and those initiatives to finally uh, end smoking in England and in doing so save you know, countless lives. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, thank you, uh, John, John, for being uh, for uh, being with us and answering our questions and sharing your insight with our listeners in regards to how detrimental it is to our health uh, for us to be smoking, uh, whether it be ourselves or through passive smoking as well, um, and, and, and ways in which we can better the situation, not just uh, within our own circles, but also uh, on a wider level. Uh, and I'm sure that has been beneficial for, for, for many of the listeners. Uh, so thank you once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That, uh, that was uh, John uh, Waldron, who is the policy manager at the public health charity Ash, uh, which is Action on Smoking and Health, sharing his thoughts with us. Um, as we can see, spirit smoking is not allowed in Islam because it's not good for our physical and spiritual health. Um, and this is, of course, what Islam teaches us as well. And with that, we're going to be going straight to our last uh, segment for the day, um, how there's a new discovery, largest dinosaur print ever found in Yorkshire, um, which is found in Yorkshire. So so it's not the largest in Yorkshire, but it's the largest that has been found, which happens to be in Yorkshire. So local archaeologist Mary Woods discovered the amazing meter-long fossil in Burniston Bay, uh, which is near Scarborough. It is the largest largest uh, fossil ever uh, discovered in the region. The footprint is the largest left by theropods, a group of bipedal dinosaurs that also um, includes the Tyrannosaurus rex uh, found to date in uh, in Yorkshire. And now the specimen has been studied as well. We're going to be addressing a few things. Uh, what is a fossil and how it can be, it be used as evidence of evolution, how to find uh, out the morphological uh, Morphological uh, differences in each specimen found, and other uh, such things as well. Quite a few interesting things that we're going to be addressing. Uh, but I believe we do have our first guest uh, on with us as well. Yeah, so we have uh, Dr. Elsa uh, Panciroli, who um, is a research fellow and science writer for the Oxford University Museum of Natural History, um, author of Beasts Before Us and the Earth, a biography of life. Um, thank you for joining us and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. It's a joy to be here. Thank you for joining us. Um, just uh, getting into it, uh, this is a it's quite a fascinating uh, topic. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the first question that I would want to ask is um, d- due to 
uh, the technology, uh, the technology, technological, sorry, the the advancement that we see in this day and age, um, the ways in which fossils and uh, footprints are analysed, you know, has vastly improved. Um, could you tell us about some ways in which you have um, analysed fossils? Yeah, you're right. The things that we use to look at fossils now, uh, because technology, of course, moves on, it means that we can start to ask new questions and use new techniques. So this means not only when we find new fossils like this one, we can do we can do new things with them, but we can even look at fossils we already had found and use these new techniques on them. So for footprints, uh, one of the things that's being commonly used now is, of course, in the past, we would just take photographs or before that, just draw them. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we can scan them. Yeah. So yeah. we can use things like structured light scanning, which basically uses beams of light to actually scan not just one footprint, but when you find multiple ones, you can scan an entire surface. You can scan almost the whole shoreline of a beach. Wow. And and then, of course, that means you can study them without having to be on the shore. You can look at them and, uh, using software on your computer. You can also do things like heat mapping so that's where you know you'll see that things that are high have a have, are like red or uh, orange and things that are really low are blue and it, it basically makes uh, structures pop you can see the shapes much more clearly than you could just by eye so mm. using stuff like that really helps us to study these things in a lot more detail and it helps us catch things that in the past people would have missed because they just couldn't see it so clearly wow indeed indeed um you know as a paleontologist um, what has uh, been your most exciting? Uh, what has been your most exciting find um, so far? Oh, it's really difficult to pick. Um, <laughs> I, I think I've actually got two, and I, I'm excited about them for totally different reasons. One of them, of course, is is got to be a dinosaur because and and that's why i'm excited about it because everybody loves dinosaurs including me um when i was on the isle of egg just off scotland the coast of scotland um i was out with the team looking for fossils and we nobody's ever found dinosaurs there before and when i was running back along the shore to the team who had who i was quite far away from i actually stepped on the largest uh bit of dinosaur that has ever been found on the Isle of Egg. It was the first dinosaur fossil. It was a whole limb bone. And it was amazing because we'd all been walking along the shore all day and nobody had seen it. And it was just luck I happened to to step on it. Don't worry, you can step on them without breaking them. (laughs) (laughs) So that was very exciting. But actually, I would have to say my number one thing was on another island called Skye, not far from the Isle of Egg. Um, where the first year I ever did field work looking for fossils, I found this tiny, tiny little lizard, and it's um, a almost complete lizard skeleton. It's really, really small, um, and I'm really, I was very excited because although it's only tiny, I found an entire skeleton, and I think that's always very exciting. Wow! Yeah, I mean, j- just hearing about this is, is exciting. I can't imagine how much, you know, the whole team and you must have, how uh, you know it must have been a great find for you and the whole oh. team. Oh, it's always it's such a team effort going out and doing field work that when any of us finds anything, and of course I'm not the only one, other team members find great things too. The whole team is excited because it means that it's been a success. Yeah. So it's always good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> moving on just to the next question is, you know, how do uh, footprints, you know, like uh, so uh, those that which are found in uh, Yorkshire recently, you know, how do they aid uh, paleontologists as yourself in you know your research for for the yeah. for the evolution of dinosaurs? 
Yeah, so I mean, there are there are kind of two main types of fossil. One of them being body fossils. So that's of course limb bones, um, and sometimes if you're really lucky, soft tissues like skin. But then the other thing is what we would call ichnofossils. These mm-hmm. are fossils like footprints that are usually like indents. So, for example, worm burrows, footprints, um, things like that, which isn't an actual animal itself, but it's the trace that animal left behind in the world. And you get completely different information from those two types of fossils. Because obviously, if you have the body of an animal, you can look at, you know, what did it look like? How did it move? And you can examine its bones. But for footprints, you get very different information because they actually capture behavior. I see. So in this case, the one in... Yeah, the one in Yorkshire, they think from the angle of the footprint and the way it's gone into the mud that it's actually capturing the movement of the dinosaur. It perhaps was crouching as it was moving through the landscape, maybe to take a drink, who knows? Wow. Um, and, and we also have footprints in other parts of the world that show all kinds of other behaviours from just, you know, running, walking, sitting, digging, um, you know, even footprints from other animals that show that they were swimming in shallow water and they were, they were actually just scuffing the bottom of the lake as they swam. <laughs> so it captures behaviour and there's no other way to see that wow. millions of years ago. So it's really quite unique um, information that you can get. That is, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so just, uh, just just for the, the last question, I would say is um, if there's anyone listening who's, um, you know, who's interested in this field uh, of work, uh, I mean, it sounds very interesting. And, uh, you know, what would what would your advice be to them to follow such a career, who want to follow such a uh, career path? Yeah, well... I think there's so many different things I could say, but I think the main thing is if people are interested in becoming paleontologists and studying extinct life, is that there's lots and lots of different paths to get into studying that. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you're good at science, that's brilliant. But for those that maybe that isn't their strongest subject, they could also be focusing on things like computing and coding, because we use a lot of computers now. Um, And of course, they could also be looking at other skills like writing. And also, I think the biggest thing is learning to look at lots of evidence and evaluate it and think critically about it. Is Does this make sense? What is this telling me? And you can really apply that to any subject that you're good at. Um, And yeah, I think really just concentrate on the subjects that you're good at and see how you can turn them towards uh, studying extinct life, really. Indeed, indeed. I mean, um, you know, the 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 whole topic is really um, uh, it's very interesting, and uh, you know, I'm sure those who, who who are in this field, I mean, there's there's probably never a boring day at work. I mean, I'm sure you. Oh well, yeah. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I I'm making it sound as if I spend all my time out finding fossils. But of course, <laughs> I spend a lot of time in front of the computer as well. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure and uh, have a lovely day and a lovely week ahead. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. That was uh, Dr. Elsa, a research fellow and science writer for the Oxford University Museum of Natural History, uh, who is also the author of Beasts Before Us and the Earth, a biography of life. And, uh, you know, I mean, just uh, we can see uh, those who are listening. We can see you know these uh, the, the the finds as well. Um, just hearing about them, uh, hearing of the story of uh, the finds that they have uh, that they have found is quite in- exciting. I mean, um, 
it's a uh, you know it's it's quite eye opening when yeah. you when you see something uh, what the what uh, the doctor mentioned when with footprints how you can see how they behave and how they walk around that was really really interesting exactly exactly um more on that uh we are going to be t- going to be speaking to our next guest for the show now dr john hudson uh who is a geologist and paleontologist and has worked freelanced uh, freelance with the scarborough museum and hidden horizons for nearly 20 years uh, leading fossil walks and talks for the general public he has been uh, one of a number of local geologists uh, uh, geologists uh, who have supplied information to chef University Dinosaur Track research group for over 20 years run by uh, doctors Mike Romano and Martin White. He is now retired but still keeps an active interest in the local geology. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us today. We're speaking about a very interesting topic um, and one of the things that we just mentioned with our earlier guest as well, Dr. Elsa, uh, was in regards to the, 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 the what we can understand from the different footprints um, uh, that we can see from dinosaurs. So if you can explain to our listeners a little bit about this, uh, what type of dinosaur would have made this free footprint that we're talking about today and what we know about the animal's size and behavior. Right, well, we looked at the research of this, and this is a theropod dinosaur, that is, they're all carnivores, and there is a a difference when you're researching footprints between the herbivores and the carnivores and the very large sauropods. Mm -hmm. Um, We can call it, uh, we can't call it a megalosaurus, because we don't know for certain that this megalosaurus made the footprint, but we can say it was made by a megalosaurid-type dinosaur. And unless we find them dead at the footprint and the end of the footprint trail, we really have no idea. But if we if we measure the footprints and we're doing research on it, we we've come to the um, conclusion that this creature was 2.5 to 3 meters high at the hip. Uh, it weighed probably 1.5 to 2 tons, about 8 meters long. And it is an unusual feature, the uh, the footprint. It seems to represent a resting, crouching trace of this dinosaur. Uh, it was a very large carnosaur, and this is quite unusual. We, we have hundreds, and if not thousands, of footprints in, in our area in the Cleveland Basin, but these very large carnosaurs are rare. Uh, the top of the food chain... So obviously they're going to be uh, less than the herbivores they're preying on. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, quite interesting, and and obviously we can see from from different um, uh, uh, from from different animals and their footprints, we can understand so much about them as well, isn't it? If there's if there's more than one, it, it might be a part of a herd, um, it, or it might be a uh, an animal which is a bit of a loner and and, and goes about uh, um, alone. So obviously there's there's different things, and and like you mentioned, we can understand the height um, of the different animals as well. So. So, so yeah, quite a few interesting things that we can see from uh, discovering and understanding uh, the, the the footprints as well. Um, what challenges, uh, Dr. Hudson, do paleontologists face when discovering or analysing uh, fossils and footprints? Well, especially on this coast, when you, when you're looking at footprints, um, it, this coast is very dynamic. We tend to get, uh, at times, a number of specimens falling onto the beach, mm-hmm. but sometimes they don't last long. 
Um, this one in particular, um, when we found it, it um, it was imprinted into the uh, clay clay mudstone substrate that used to be preserved in these uh, interfluve uh, um, floodplain basins. And when it was drying out, uh, the problem was that the footprint was delaminating and we, there was a real danger of losing it. So this was the rather hectic uh, carry-on we had in trying to preserve it. It wouldn't have lasted more than probably half a year on the coast because it was... Uh, the, the problem is that the cliff fall there, the cliffs are very unstable, and one further fall on the footprint would have wiped all the evidence on the um, on the base of the rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite difficult then, isn't it? Um, the the footprint uh, was discovered by accident uh, on a, on a beach in Yorkshire, isn't it? Can Can you tell us a little bit more about how the discovery was made and what the process of uh, analysing the footprint uh, has involved? Yes, uh, it's quite a, a long drawn out process to find. It was found originally by Rob Taylor. Uh, this was the year before, but it was covered in the um, surface clay um, print so we we didn't have a clear view of what the print was like. Mm-hmm. Rob informed Dr. Dean Lomax and Dr. Mike Romano but nothing more was done because it just seemed to be just another large theropod print of which we have about six over the years in the Cleveland Basin and then the, the following year in the March or April Marie Wood refound it and it was Dean that connected these prints together Mm-hmm. And Marie took me down and I looked at the print and it was showing the um, the three-toed footprint of a theropod dinosaur plus what we call the metapodium. And this is the metatarsals and where the heel is at the end of them. Now, dinosaurs all walked on their toes. So this straight away struck me as being unusual. And it was Dean that came up with it may be a resting trace of this large carnosaur. Now, in order to um, ascertain this, we need to record it. Now, fortunately, lockdown, I was the only one doing the recording because <laughs> no one could get down. So I uh, I recorded it, and, and it's important that when you're doing this, the observation is vital to re- record so that we can research uh, other scientific papers and the literature to see if there's anything about um, similar footprints worldwide. Uh, And it's also important when you're looking at footprints, they're not studied in isolation. They're studied with uh, any reference to body fossils, uh, the flora, the the type of substrate it's in. So we get as much information about the environment that these creatures lived in that we possibly can. And then we we go ahead and check everything before we publish this to go into peer review to see if we've um, we've done a good job of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, and lastly, Dr. Hudson, what insights can the discovery provide into the history and evolution of dinosaurs in the UK um, and beyond as well? Well. It's quite interesting, actually, because there is a dearth of uh, dinosaur body fossils of information in the Middle Jurassic about 165, 70-odd million years ago. 
And we have here on the Cleveland Basin evidence of, of a, a great number of dinosaurs, primitive stegosaurs, several types of thoropods, uh, medium size and small ornithopods, and again, this very large carnosaur. And uh, my colleague and fellow author, Dr. Mike Romano, has published a paper recently in the last few years where there's an indication that these creatures came originally from an area in Wyoming and migrated into our area, bearing in mind that there's no Atlantic Ocean at the time. So dinosaurs had quite a free reign along this huge uh, uh, interconnected continent. And when they settled in the Cleveland Basin, we have similar footprint evidence from the uh, Hebridean Basin in the northwest of Scotland, which is being researched by doctors um, uh, Steve Brissati and Neil Clark from um, Edinburgh. So we're getting a lot of information that we can put together to give us a really clear idea of how dinosaurs were evolving worldwide in, in the Middle Jurassic. Mm. It's such an interesting uh, topic and a lot of research uh, which is being done on this, which is which is amazing. Um, and 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 God willing, we'll be able to understand more and more about them and have, find find more discoveries as well, which is of course uh, very fascinating to to say the least. Uh, Doctor Hudson, thank you for being with us for answering our questions, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Likewise, thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. John Hudson, uh, who is a geologist, paleontologist as well, and uh, has worked freelance with the Scarborough Museum and Hidden Horizons for nearly twenty years, leading fossils walks and talks for the general public. He has been one of a, mem- a number of local geolo- geologists who have supplied information to Sheffield University Dinosaur Track Research Group for over twenty years, run by doctors Mike Romano and Martin White, who he mentioned as well. He is now retired but still keeps an active interest in the local geology. Yes, and... <clears throat> sorry. Next, we have uh, Dr. Emma, who is a vertebrate paleontologist specialising in fossil sharks and reptiles. She manages the fossil collections at Oxford University Museum of Natural History. Uh, Dr. Emma, thank you for joining us and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thanks ever so much for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. And um, <clears throat> uh, just getting straight into it, um, you know, it's a fascinating topic, I uh, I must say. And uh, so the first question would be, uh, can you tell us uh, more about the newly um, discovered dinosaur print found in Yorkshire and uh, its significance um, for researchers? Yeah, of course. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I wasn't part of the research uh, team, uh, but the print, I believe you were just talking to John, which is great. Um, the print was found in its current or recent state by uh, Marie Woods, um, though part of the print um, had been seen by Rob Taylor five months prior. Mm-hmm. And that's because a large block of rock like this, it, it takes time for the weather to uncover it properly. So, um, yeah, that's why there's sort of two, <laughs> two <laughs> layers of discovery. Uh, uh-huh. A good storm is very good for paleontology as uh, it can expose fresh fossils along the beach um, although if you're going fossil hunting um, although after a storm is a great time obviously it's also a very dangerous time so um, yeah. yeah be very careful anyone who's <laughs> listening who wants to do that uh, anywho Marie and Rob were then part of the scientific team uh, along with John who you're just talking to uh, Mike Romano and Dean Lomax um, who have formally described it in um, what we call a, a peer-reviewed journal article. 
Um, so when it comes to prints like this, paleontologists can't be 100% certain what species of dinosaur made them because all you've got is the footprint. Um, it's like you or I would you know, create if we were walking along a wet uh, beach. It doesn't say much at all about what we look like as people. Hmm. Um, so subsequently, this is called a, a trace fossil, uh, and that's any mark left behind by an animal, whereas actual bones that have been fossilized or other parts of the actual animal itself <laughs> are called body fossils. Mm -hmm. um, so as this specimen is uh, what we call a trace fossil, we don't give it a dinosaur name or attribute it to one specific species. Uh, because there isn't enough direct evidence to say what it is. So we give it a trace fossil name, um, which in this case, um, the team I mentioned earlier who described the fossil have assigned it to uh, an ichnogenus called Megalosaurus, which means megalosaur foot or big lizard foot, <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant. Um, in terms of its significance, um, you asked as well. So dinosaur trackways um, in this area where this was found are relatively common, actually. Um, and in fact, it's one of the best areas in the world for dinosaur tracks. Wow. Um, yeah, which is really cool. Uh, what makes this different is that um, large, well-preserved theropod tracks are rare. Now, theropod dinosaurs are the bipedal, as uh, so they walk on, on two legs like you and me, mm. um, they're the bipedal predatory dinosaurs. Tyrannosaurus rex, for example, is a, a very well-known theropod. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that one. Uh, so previous large theropod footprints from what we call the Cleveland Basin Formation, the rock uh, where this one was found. Um, they measured between 60 and 65 centimeters, the larger ones, in maximum length. So this one, uh, the team have measured this as 80 centimeters, um, which includes the heel of the animal, which needs to be uh, taken in, into consideration. Uh, but either way, it's, a <laughs> it's definitely a very large footprint. Um, indeed, and it, it seems to be, sorry. Sorry, yeah, I'm just agreeing. I'm, it's, 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 yeah, it's indeed, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I know curators talk a lot, so do interrupt at any point. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it, 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 it sounds like the, the way you are speaking, I'm sure, and, and with our previous guests as well, it's a very interesting uh, topic and uh, especially Absolutely. especially when you when you find something which is, you know, amazing and, you know, eye-opening, it's, it's quite exciting, actually. Absolutely, yeah. And further scientific excitement um, actually has been caused, of course, by the possibility that the footprint shows evidence of crouching behaviour. Mm, um, yeah. So it's, it's difficult to be certain without more prints in a trackway. If, you, if you've just got one isolated uh, footprint, it can be very difficult to really... There's no context for it, if you like. Um, but because three-toed animals, um, like megalosaurs, for example, tend to walk in what we call digitigrade style. That's kind of like walking on your tiptoes for us. Mm -hmm. um, the footprint from Berniston Bay is a large back end or heel, if you like, um, present in the footprint. And, and that means it's not walking on its tiptoes. So what does that show? Was it walking very slowly? Would that even make that print? Uh, was it standing still? Or was it crouching down, uh, thus putting more weight on the back of the foot, uh, meaning a heel impression is left? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Whatever the answer is, it's a very, very interesting yeah. and exciting discovery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, in your opinion, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. In your opinion, uh, what are some of the uh, you know, most pressing questions in the field of paleontology today? And uh, you know, what new discoveries uh, do you hope to see in the coming years? Oh, good question. I think some of the most pressing questions uh, within paleontology at the moment pertain to its relevance to big issues. Um, that we're facing as a world, really. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, climate change, uh, the impact that 
going to that it's going to have on plant and animal species and habitats and environments around the world. There have been several large-scale extinction events. Five were so large throughout geological time. I mean, and five were so large they were termed mass extinctions. Um, so for a variety of reasons, including our own impact on the planet through our varied destructive and polluting behaviours, we are facing um, what could well turn out to be a sixth mass extinction. Um, and oh, climate wow. change, yeah, absolutely. We're losing plants and animals around the world at a huge rate of knots. Uh, it's frightening. Um, climate change is a natural phenomenon. The Earth has always had a climate and it's always been changing. Uh, but what humans are doing is speeding up the rate of change, and that's causing big problems. So given that climate change and extinctions have happened throughout geological time, by studying these past ecosystems, using the fossil record, which is what paleontologists do, we can ascertain how different animal groups have responded to habitat and climate changes uh, in the past uh, how they've adapted or gone extinct, um, ultimately how life has recovered. Mm. And this should help us predict what might happen in our near futures uh, in the modern day. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, time, I think time is not on our side today. Um, it's a very interesting, <laughs> very interesting topic. And I'm sure I can hear, I can sit here and all, uh, listen to you all day about this because um, the, the topic is really, really fascinating. Um, you know, thank you for joining us. And, uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. Peace be upon you. And you take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Emma, uh, who is a paleontologist and uh, a vertebrate paleontologist specializing in, the f uh, in fossil sharks and reptiles. And it, it just goes to show how important research is, isn't it? And, and, and Islam teaches us so much about this. But like you mentioned, it's, uh, the time isn't on our side. And that's it that we have time for today. Here's the 9 o'clock news.